That's balance for me. It's it's when you kind of combine the the texture, the vibrancy, the acidity, the sweetness, and put them all together, and nothing should show, you know. And uh, and that's for me the wines I like drinking. That's the wines we like making, and that's our goal. Good afternoon, and thank you for listening to Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. This is a 30-minute show dedicated to sharing an inside perspective of the Epicurean world here on Nantucket Island. You will hear from those voices who've helped create and represent this fascinating place. And lastly, we hope to educate on wine, healthy cooking, and the agricultural and sustainable community here on island. Good afternoon. Welcome, everyone. This is Camille Broderick with Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. And today we have a special guest, another winemaker in the studio this season. We have Raj Parr. You might think he's a sommelier. You might think he's a writer. You might think he is a restaurateur, but uh, he has achieved all of those professional careers, but he is currently a full-time winemaker. Welcome, Raj. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Why don't we start with your first wine memory. First wine memory. Ooh, uh, I guess the first time I had wine was so I was I was uh, born in India, and uh, there's a little port town which is actually was a Portuguese colony in called Goa, and I was there when I was I think I was like eighteen, nineteen years old uh, when they're from college, and they made some really terrible sweet port style wine and that's the first time I was like what the hell is this I'm not sure if it was made from grapes but that was the first time I had that but then after that the real wine memory was definitely with my uncle in England when I was living with him uh, I had some Bordeaux and I was like wow this is interesting this is made from grapes this is fascinating so I had no idea what it was and then uh, just got curious and just kept studying and reading and yeah so a lot of people I've met in my professional career and all the people I've interviewed, I've learned that their youth really impacts their memory profile for their palate and really what their career may even lead into. So sure. growing up in India, are there any special food memories or anything that you remember <laughs> that actually affects you now in your winemaking taste? Yeah, so many. I, th- I think it starts because, you know, I mean, I grew up in Calcutta and food was like the center of the whole day. It's like, what do you have for lunch? And my, you know, when your grandmother's cooking for your mom, my mom's a great, great cook. And so, you know, all these spices and all these. I have to go to India. Yeah. I mean, all these amazing exotic <laughs> spices. So it was always, you know, you know, heightened sense. So you're always like, okay, well, you know, you're smelling all these crazy things all the time and eating. So of course there was no wine involved. I didn't even know what, uh, what wine was growing up, but uh, definitely those, those smells and those tastes, even now when I taste wine, drink wine, uh, and and work with wine, you always kind of come back to some smells of random, like you know, uh, raw turmeric, or like what you know, what what is what is a you know beetle nut smell like, or you know, I mean, really, if you have you know reduction in wine, it smells like a fresh curry leaf. So these things, memories come back from like what you you know what you had when you were young, mm-hmm. and of course, all those things I said, many of them don't even exist in. Uh, in the wine world, definitely, you know, most people don't like sit around and eat betel nut or you know, <laughs> cook with curry leaf. But, but it's all about things that reminisce or <laughs> yeah. bring you back for sure, it's, and it's, have it's, a relation to it. Yeah, absolutely, and and those things are memories, and memories, you know, keep coming back to you if you taste wine and you know, how old wine tastes, and it's just fascinating. 
So you've also been fortunate to be educated in hotel school, and you yeah. also went to the CIA. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. double duty. You want to yeah, t- yeah, want to talk yeah, about yeah. how you chose to make those commitments? Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to be a chef since I was uh, since I was young, and of course, there was no cooking school in India at the time. So I kind of I said I'll do hotel management and kind of learn about hotels and restaurants. And and I worked in the kitchen for you know about three years when I went to school. And then I moved to went to England, and then I came to New York and to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park. And it was amazing, just just you know diving into uh, all these new flavors and and new ingredients I had never seen before. Uh, coming from India, moving you know to New York, I had hadn't tasted you know ninety percent of the ingredients at the time. Uh, this is in nineteen ninety four. Wow, long time ago. <laughs> Cooking school was only uh, a way to kind of enhance the knowledge you already have, and uh, for me, it really kind of taught me a lot about how to just basically cook. So what happened after New York? Was that when you went to San Francisco and started um, from the bottom up working as a food runner? Yeah, so I had a wine class and I was like, and the wine class, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. This is this is, this is is made from grapes. I was like, how is this, like, how can it be so, like, so interesting? And I kept reading and studying and I wanted to learn from someone. At that time, they were not that many young sommeliers. This was in 96 when I graduated. And I went to uh, work with Larry Stone at Rubicon in San Francisco. But of course, I started to, you know, as a food runner. And then I slowly kind of uh, you know, made my way up and became Larry Stone's assistant. And at the time, Larry was the most famous sommelier in America. Uh, so I got lucky. Uh, he took me under his wing and kind of taught me. And I worked with him for three years. He's still my mentor, still everything to me. So... Can you tell us about him and what he was like and what you learned? He's very serious about service, you know. It was his whole demeanor about service, what about pleasing the guest, about exploring wine and then sharing knowledge. He was one of the greatest teachers. It still is one of the greatest teachers I've ever met because he spent so much time with people, teaching them, talking to them, not dismissing them, and really kind of, you know, listening and sharing experiences and sharing knowledge. And under him, he did classes every Saturday, blind tasting, for uh, the whole staff. In fact, he also invited other sommeliers to join. Uh, the only if you come, if your outsider comes and joins the tasting, you got to bring a bottle with you. Mm-hmm and do a classic wine. And so he was really, really open to teaching. And I think that really kind of, uh, you know, really got me interested in teaching. And, and when I started working on my own, my goal was to also, you know, help people and train people and teach people because you have to pay it forward. You can't just learn and keep it yourself. You have to uh, talk about it and, and share your knowledge. And I think that's what I learned from Larry. So after that experience, was that into the trajectory for maybe writing your book, or did you go into restaurateur operational management from yeah, that point? From from that after Rubicon three years, you know, I, I had reached a point, and you know, I told Larry, I said, I got to, you know, do my own gig and kind of find a restaurant I can run a program. And I worked uh, at a restaurant called Fifth Floor in San Francisco for three years, and then. I met Michael Mina and started working with him in, since 2002, and then we opened a restaurant together called RN74. So it was, I think, I think the goal was always just working and learning, and so that kind of led to the next step and the next step. I didn't really plan uh, too many things ahead of time. I just kind of just went with the flow. Uh, the book just happened, The Secret Sommelier, which 
Jordan McKay and myself wrote uh, 2011, I think. And that just happened because we were just seeing this huge wave of young sommeliers coming in. And I was like, wow, we must remember where this came from. So the book really celebrates the sommeliers like Larry and Daniel Jonas and Fred Dame and you know, Kevin Israeli and many others in the book. So it really kind of talks about uh, what it takes to become a sommelier and how you, you know, what's the job. People think sommelier's job is just like, you know, give you a glass Walk of wine. Walk around the floor, and, yeah, taste, and, some and, wine. taste Taste wine, and, <laughs> and which is, which it happens a lot, of course, but there's a lot more than just doing that. So And Fred Damon, these, Kevin Israeli. Uh, I took Kevin Israeli's class. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and Amazing. he was uh, one of the first teachers probably – Big on the East Coast, he for was sure. he was in the Twin Towers. Oh, His, for sure. That was where he was established. Oh, you know, he he was he was the grandmaster yeah. of all because even though he didn't do you know the certifications and stuff, but he was an educator from very early on and was really a huge ambassador for wine in America. Yeah. And Fred Dame is he started the Mass Only the program in the U.S. He he went to England, passed the test, and then. Told them that I want to start an American chapter, and then he convinced a bunch of sommeliers in America to join him and go take the the MS test, and really spearheaded the whole movement. Today, the Court of Mass Sommeliers are probably the most important sommelier community uh, in America for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, they basically breed ambassadors of wine who end up become sommeliers or other things because. Once you become a mass sommelier, you don't have to always be a sommelier because they go on to be teachers or working for other companies. But And Fred spirited that on his own, just out of will. Nothing which would be, which would make him uh, famous or rich, but it was just, he said, I want everyone in America to know that we can have great sommeliers here. So, One other fun project you participated in was the Psalm movie. Yeah. Um, with Jason Wise. Uh, the Jason Wise, the director. Yeah, yeah, the director. And then there was... You know, of course, the the young crew, some of them who worked with me at RN74, you know, Eric Railsback and Dustin Wilson, Brian McClintock, Ian Cobble, and to really promote the the profession of a sommelier because yeah. it's, you know, it's fairly new. It's, I mean, new, new, 20 years is new. 20 years ago, you had a handful. Now every restaurant has a sommelier mm-hmm. and, and everywhere in America. So, you yeah, know. and historically it was more of a servant, and now yeah, it's, exactly. the role has elevated into exactly. something a little so I, more Yeah, I think the restaurant tours, professional. yeah, they realize that beverage sales are a big part of a restaurant. At the end of the day, success. it comes down to <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. down money, but sure. they really do bring in a lot of income to the yep. establishment. Yeah. Uh, so why don't we talk about you being a winemaker? Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you're just tuning yeah. in, this is Camille Broderick on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. And we're speaking with Raj Parr, a winemaker, both in California and in Oregon. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. It, again, the, it, the winemaking thing happened just by chance. And uh, I was curious about making uh, wine. And I started working with some friends who made wine and kind of, and telling them what, I, what my ideas were, and then that led to more something more serious, and I kind of started making wine with Sashi Mormon starting in 2009. And what was your relationship? How did you meet uh, Sashi uh, Mormon? Sashi, I met. He was he came to sell me wine. He was a winemaker at Stolpen Vineyards, and then I met him, and we decided to start Sandi, and then we also at the time uh, planted a vineyard, uh, which became Drummond de la Cote. 
And then we recently, uh, three years ago in 2014, acquired the Eveningland Vineyards in Oregon, which is the Seven Springs uh, estate, which is a very, very historical, historical and well-known estate. And we were very lucky to take it over. And uh, we are just releasing our first vintage uh, just now, 2014. So I don't plan that much in my life. I kind of just go with the flow. And if you told me 10 years ago that you're going to like have a vineyard and make wine and live in Santa Barbara, I'm like, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I like restaurants. But then just got curious and then you get older and you kind of realize, you know, you don't want to work the floor every day. <laughs> Yeah. Then you're like, <laughs> the reality of the physical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's uh, but bear of it uh, all. Yeah, but it's it's really a great opportunity. To, you know, we, we mostly produce Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, so it's two grapes I love. One of your philosophies is to have a hands-off approach to winemaking. Yeah, you've confessed you love Rhones and Chablis, and uh, but you really know that you're still making wine in California, you're making wine in Oregon, and you're really yeah. trying to let the wine speak for itself. For sure. You want to talk more about your philosophy? Yeah, you know, again, we try to make the wine uh, without, of course, wine is a human intervention, but when we make the wine, we try to keep it hands-off, and of course, our vineyards are organically and farmed in, in California and biodynamically farmed in, in Oregon, so we try to keep the philosophy, of course, sustainable. Hopefully, the vineyards will be in better shape then we found it. They were in good shape. We found it, but now we're just trying to improve it. In and Oregon or in California? In bo- both, both. So mm-hmm. the land we found in uh, in California was uh, was virgin land. There's nothing there, so we we planted that. And in Oregon, we f- took over an estate which had been planted in 1984. So two. So different- you really have a start to finish project and something yeah. else that's new and yeah. inherited. Exactly. And the goal is just you know it's it's I think that. Winemaking and wine growing is such an interesting idea and a concept because it takes so long to learn even a little thing. So these vineyards are probably at least the ones in California we planted. They are definitely for the next generation because by the time we kind of finish up our work, I'm not sure how long I'm going to live, but <laughs> it's, it's going to be, you know, the wines will be, you know, slightly older and then they'll, you know, the next generation will have more fun with it. Versus in Oregon, it's pretty amazing to see that we're working with vines which are planted 30 years ago. Let's talk about Oregon. It's really, I think, a hot topic right now. There's a lot coming out of Oregon that's um, really bringing more attention to the area. Do you want to talk about the landscape in Oregon and what you've seen since you started this project? Yes, Oregon, of course, the the wine uh, story is only in the 60s when first vineyards were planted there and some people from California moved up and planted vineyards there and it's definitely in America it's the home of Pinot Noir because it's uh, and the reason is it's pretty obvious it's the same latitude as Burgundy so it has very similar weather patterns of course the soils are quite different and it it rains a lot it rains more than Burgundy actually but it's a very very interesting place to grow grapes because it's uh, it's a continental climate and Pinot Noir thrives there and, and now Chardonnay, and they, were, they have Riesling and Pinot Gris. So our experience of working with an, exist, an older vineyard, it really kind of shows us the potential there is. And there's so many great producers now and so many people moving from around around the world. There's so many Burgundy producers who are living in, in Oregon. It's a, it's a really energetic wine community. There's great, great people. Uh, Droyan, the Joseph Droyan family from Burgundy, they moved to Oregon early on, and Mayo Camusage, Jean-Nicolas Mayo, 
has a vineyard there, of course. Oh, uh, really? Louis Jadot has a vineyard there. Louis-Michel Ligibelair. Burgundy's tapped out. It's all planted. Right. And with the weird You only weather, get land if someone unfortunately passes away or yeah, there's an argument in the even family. Even then, that's gone so expensive. <laughs> yes. and, and with the weather problems the last couple of years, so, you know, people still want to drink Pinot Noir and Chardonnay because mm-hmm. uh, that category is, in, there's not enough great Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the world to satisfy the demand. So people you know, have to go and find other places and you know because people like those grapes and they want to drink it <laughs> so as a winemaker and a new young winemaker that must be an exciting landscape and it's a region that's really developing oh, it's amazing you get to really witness that oh, it's amazing and there's so many amazing people there that's that's very special about about uh, Oregon it's a, just a very tight community really great people just super super people so it's it's fun to go like there. here in Nantucket yeah oh. and so why don't we go back to California and um, you've you've been quoted to say that you think that this generation in California may be really changing the perception and the future of California winemaking. I'd love to talk about that because California is known for its Chardonnays and its cabs and these more big, full-bodied, yeah. tannic type of wines. Uh, and you're seeing maybe a trend in another direction, which is very exciting, I think, for, for Americans. For sure, because of course the you know, story goes back to the Napa Valley, which is making wine for over 100 years. So, and then, you know, become very popular and, and land is expensive, wine is expensive. You know, so you can't really only survive off Cabernet because you need other things. Historically, there have been other grape varieties planted in California. And uh, I think a handful of people are going back to, you know, planting Chenin Blanc and planting Trousseau and finding the right places for Pinot Noir, right places for Syrah. And these are all kind of new things. These are only the last 20, 30 years when... Mm-hmm. Even though Pinot Noir was produced in Naff Valley 60, 70 years ago, but now people are moving towards the coast and finding the right vineyards, planting them the right way, the right selection. So, And the, young, the younger generation, I guess, our generation, and even the younger than us, they are definitely drinking more European wine. And so, of course, stylistically, if you're... You know, European styles or, and European and wines? And European yeah. wines, because, I mean... I grew up in, in restaurants, and I, don't, you know, I never drank California wine yeah. twenty years ago, uh, fifteen years ago. I, I feel the same. And it's almost as if culinary school is about French classic technique, yeah, yeah. just like in wine. The classic in the old world style yeah. is sort of the your template for for learning. Yeah, but now if you like, there's so many delicious, amazing, uh, you know, Pinot Noirs and Syrah and Chardonnays from all over the coast in California and people are looking at California wine differently. It's not just like, oh, this is an, an you know, oaky sweet wine, mm-hmm. which is the impression people have. Mm-hmm. And um, so things are changing. It's definitely the winemaking is changing, the wine growing is changing, and then also the younger generation, the drinkers, are definitely liking more fresher, high acid, vibrant wines, wines which kind of wake you up, not put you to sleep, basically, yeah. just in, yeah. in, in simple terms. Yeah. As I've read more about you and learned about your education, you always talk about um, is balance, which a lot of wine people try to explain balance in a wine. Yeah. What does balance mean for you? Yeah, so, you know, of course, balance is different for everybody else. And, and it's just basically, uh, do you like to have a banana, which is crunchy and just still kind of yellow or you want a banana which is maybe slightly ripe right little brown uh, yeah. or, or you can example of anything you know or, uh, you know a crunchy cherry or whatever the case may be mm-hmm. i like more crunch more texture 
more brightness. Hence, I like to eat my fruits at an earlier point, not when they're overripe. I like them. So, of course, the wines you make are that. That's balanced for me. It's, it's when you kind of combine the, the texture, the vibrancy, the acidity, the sweetness, if there is ripeness in that case for wine, and put them all together and nothing should show, you know. And, uh, and that's for me the wines I like drinking. That's the wines we like making. And that's our goal. That's a great analogy, the ripeness of a fruit and what you prefer. Do you have other sort of uh, tools or techniques or things when you talk about wine on a basic level to people when you're first For introducing sure. wine yeah, and when wine I'm ta- tasting? When I'm talking about the smell of wine, you know, just an example for, you know, a lot of older wines uh, smell like, uh, you know, maybe rose petals. But if you take the flower and you have the flower, which is fresh, just cut from the plant, and you smell it. You smell. That's a very different smell than if you leave that flower on your bedside for two weeks, and it's maybe decayed. Or then another two months, and maybe it's dried by then, and the smell of that same flower is very different. And mm-hmm. that's how wine is. And I use that often because a young wine might have this kind of vibrant fruit aromas, and as it ages, it's kind of drying up in a way, not mm-hmm. dry for the in texture, but the nose, and the, you have all the subtleties. And some people like young, fresh, bright wine, and some people like older, more mature, more kind of tobacco and mushroom and truffle kind of smells. Mm-hmm. And these these are things which, you know, if you haven't experienced, then you may not like it. But the more you teach your own, you know, your own sensory, you know, what, what, you, what you smell and taste, and that can really kind of open your mind for different kinds of wine. Do you feel that studying food and going to the CIA, being on the floor has made you a better winemaker? For sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think, and of course, the wines we make is our own style. Everyone has their own imprint, you know. The grapes don't just grow and just show up in the winery and become the wine. It's the human touch which kind of takes the wine through its path to what it's going to be or what it becomes eventually. Mm-hmm. And and that's a very stylistic thing. And every individual has has a different view. I mean, from the old world wines, from Burgundy or Rhone, it's the same vineyard. You could have five different winemakers making one of the same vineyard. Or they all might have a common thread, but they are different because mm-hmm. it's not they have a different barrel program maybe. They ferment it cooler or warmer or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. And for me, our wines are very much in our style, which we know and believe in and and like and and the wines we drink are in that style also so what you make is what we drink yeah. it's like, it's, it's what, it's, it's <laughs> I mean you yeah. cook what you want to eat exactly. you sh- should make the wine that you want to yeah. drink yeah. and lastly you mentioned earlier that um, you're starting a new book that sounds really fascinating and uh, if you want to talk about it it would be great Yeah, I'm, I'm addicted to uh, learning and uh, teaching uh, this book is again with Jordan McKay I've been working on it for a couple of years now it's called The Atlas of Taste so why classic wines taste the way they taste from the soil, soil perspective uh, so it's we've traveled the world we've been to pretty much every important vineyard in Europe. A lot of research, a lot of tasting, a lot of time in vineyards and cars and hotel rooms and <laughs> random places. And So yeah, I'll be out next year, next fall, and uh, just try to kind of, you know, talk about, you know, what makes these, these individual wines so different and so unique. And one last question. If you could make wine anywhere else in the world right now, at this time in your life, mm. where would be a, a place Ooh. that you would go and... Wow. Uh, anywhere in the world. Um, hmm. I'm at this moment infatuated by Spain. I am in love with the wines from the small region in Galicia called Ribera Sacra, 
which is fascinating. The wines are fascinating. The place is fascinating. It's and uh, yeah, it's a wild dream. It's never going to happen. It's a wild <laughs> dream. So this is just a. Well, that's what yeah, life's I'm, about. I'm, I'm you can ve- have them. I'm very happy living in Santa Barbara and working <laughs> yep. in San Rita Hills. Uh, but if, the, if 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 a dream came around, that could yeah. be interesting. Yeah, great. Well, it was lovely to have you here. Um, good luck with your next project, and I can't wait to see what you're going to do next. Awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Camille's Demi Hour on Nantucket's NPR station. Tune in next weekend, Saturday and Sunday at 1.30 p.m. Cheers. And I would like to thank my sponsor, Nantucket Culinary. Food is love. Food is learning. Food is fun. Welcome to Nantucket Culinary, a home for sharing, celebrating, and conserving the island's unique heritage.